Hello and welcome to the latest in our series of podcasts where we're exploring some of the uh, solutions available to tackle the challenges that our difficult market is throwing at us. Um, my name is Jeremy Walden. I'm head of real estate at Herbert Smith Freehills. Today I'm joined by Seth Taylor, partner in the real estate division. And Adam Regan, Head of Real Estate at HWF. And um, for those just who are not familiar with HWF, uh, we're a specialist M&A insurance broker and advisor with teams based across the US, UK, Middle East and Europe and provide strategic advice for those advising on M&A to put in place insurance solutions for those transactions. Great. Um, thanks, Adam. Um, thanks, Seb. Let's get straight into it. Uh, today we're looking at uh, the concept of synthetic warranty and indemnity insurance. Um, just to kick off with an easy one, Adam, what's it all about? Yeah, so synthetic insurance is a form of insurance where the insurer is providing a suite of warranties under a WNI policy rather than the seller itself giving those warranties under an SPA, which are then underwritten by an insurer, as would be the case in, an, in normal WNI. So the suite of warranties is therefore negotiated between the buyer and the insurer rather than the buyer and the seller. And so the warranties would therefore feature in the insurance policy itself rather than the SPA as you'd normally see in a non-synthetic WNI transaction. So that's in a nutshell what, what, what we're looking at here. Thanks Adam. Are there any other significant differences between a synthetic WNI policy as opposed to a more traditional WNI insurance product that we see is it being used in the UK corporate real estate market? Yeah, so I guess the, the first one is, is, is kind of what I've just mentioned. So there are no warranties in the SPA. So you're going to see those warranties in the policy itself and clearly, therefore, you're negotiating those with the insurer. And so as a result, the insurer is going to be you know, a lot more involved, let's say, than you might normally see them being. And in terms of who provides what and when, um, certain insurers sometimes provide their own synthetic set of warranties, which are pre-agreed at quote stage. Others can actually require the buyer to provide a set that's then negotiated with the insurer as diligence unfolds. And we see advantages to both. So the former effectively will give the buyer more certainty at the outset as to cover and potentially speed of delivery, whereas the latter may, you know, because it's a buyer side produced um, set of warranties, give you a broader coverage if you know the diligence is there to support it, which which we can come on to. Um, <clears throat> but either way, it's it could mean a more streamlined process than a traditional. WNI process because you haven't got three parties negotiating a set of warranties. You've just effectively got the insurer and the seller, and clearly that may also present costs advantages too. A third point, I guess, to note is there is no residual liability for sellers. So, you know, as a as a reminder for listeners, in a traditional WNI context, even if you have got a nominal cap of let's say a pound. Uh, sellers will still remain liable um, for fraud, let's say, is typically the, the prime example, and that's because insurers usually require a right to subrogate into the buyer's shoes and make a claim against the seller in the event of fraud. Now that shouldn't be the case where the warranties are being provided by the insurer, 
Although it is worth noting actually that sometimes insurers may still require a right to subrogate, but clearly that is going to be a very limited nexus because there are no warranties which are being provided by the seller. So, you know, by and large, less residual liability for sellers. And then the final point I would note is um, there will be no kind of synthetic, let's say, products uh, which amend those warranties because clearly the insurer is providing those warranties, so there's no need for them to amend an underlying set of warranties, as would be the case in normal W&I. So things like knowledge scrape products where seller awareness qualifications are removed from a suite of warranties, or indeed, you know, as you, you may be familiar with policies have a warranty spreadsheet at the back which amends those warranties, those kind of changes are not necessary because obviously you have a what just one set of warranties, which is the set of warranties the insurer is standing behind. So I'd say those are probably the, the key the key differences we're looking at. Thanks, Adam. And look, that's already starting to make me think about possible uses here, in particular the angle around further reducing um, what the, the seller is required to stand behind. But we'll come to that in, in a second. Still focused on process here. Um, you, you mentioned due diligence in passing. Um, how does uh, moving to a synthetic policy um, impact the diligence process? Yeah, so the key point really is there will be no formal disclosure process by the seller against a suite of warranties. And so as a result, the value of a robust due diligence process is going to be key for insurers so that they can understand the nature of the business and the assets being insured. So the, the, you know, the customary areas in an ideal world of due diligence are still going to be required. So legal, technical, financial, tax matters, as well as other specific areas which may be appropriate, you know, given the property trade in question. And the policy will contain, as, as there is no you know, disclosure letter, there will, the policy will instead contain a schedule of general disclosures, which mirror effectively a market front end disclosure letter. So, you know, disclosing matters discoverable on the face of accounts from public registers, corporate searches, etc. But it's worth acknowledging that, you know, in a lot of the time, this is going to be used in a distress scenario. And so what's the reality there? Is all that information going to be available? Perhaps not. So, or, you know, so it's limited info potentially, or sellers have got less incentive to provide. So I suppose there we would be looking at plugging the gap where we can through more detailed Q&A, let's say, or if not, the seller providing that information, really trying to dig into whether others are available in the process that might be able to give comfort on related warranty topics. So, you know, asset managers, property managers, etc. Um, but again, as a result of that lack of disclosure, there needs to be ideally a well-populated data room and, as I've mentioned, a robust Q&A process. And we would recommend involving insurers and brokers early because if you can, it's great to get insurers involved in looking at the diligence package on offer and seeing the proposed warranty package and basically marrying those two up and identifying where the gaps are because actually in some instances, insurers may even want to carry out diligence themselves in order to stand behind those warranties and clearly that will have cost ramifications and so those kind of discussions will need to be front-loaded if there's actually more work to be done. So, you know, again, we just recommend in 
those discussions taking place as soon as possible. Um, and I guess I would finally mention that the, the suite of warranties is, is going to be very closely aligned to, to that diligence, and that's probably more so than in the usual process because there isn't that general disclosure process. So it could be the case that if you haven't got the right diligence, you know, you're just not going to get cover for those warranties. And related to that, some of the broader kind of sweeping warranties that you may sometimes see in SPAs, which you may get cover for, may not be coverable under a synthetic policy. So, you know, because effectively, because there is no general seller knowledge or disclosure against them. So things like management accounts warranties, ordinary course of business warranties, statements of opinion, actions of third parties will be more of a challenge to, to get insured. So just to pick up on one quick point there in terms of the practicalities of this, we'll come back to this in a second, but you, you mentioned that we may start to see this insurance in, in scenarios where there's distress. Um, we shouldn't assume that um, this therefore means a diligence light process. And so if we're heading towards a distress scenario, the gathering of information um, quickly and um, and uh, ensuring that it's, uh, it's accessible and, um, and visible may be very important to an insurance solution here. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the, the, as you say, the, the, it will be a case of understanding what information is available at the outset. And as you point out, in a distress context, there will very likely be gaps. And so it's about considering you know, the art of the possible in those scenarios and what, where else we might look to to f fill that information in, you know, the asset managers, the property managers, as I mentioned, and and, also, and potentially targeted Q&A to those and to the seller to the extent they have that information. Thanks, Adam. You mentioned timing just a few moments ago and broadly speaking, can we just build on that, broadly speaking, when should you start speaking to, to broker in respect of a synthetic WNI policy and and what are the timelines for getting a policy in place? Yeah, so although there have been questions, especially in the early days, around timing and whether this is going to add you know, to a more lengthy process, generally it shouldn't really take any longer to the usual timelines you'll be used to for putting in place a WNI policy. So you know, broadly, we say two weeks from from you know, assuming you have a decent diligence package and a set of warranties which are ready to go. Uh, and in fact, even with the increased importance of Q&A and the absence of a disclosure process, that could in fact have some advantages as well from a timing standpoint. But again, as I've already mentioned, you know, we would recommend if where there is that timing to, to, to get going as, as soon as you can, because to, to Jeremy's point, you know, if, if there are gaps, then you know, if someone's having to do some substantive work product and produce an extra diligence report or whatever it may be, that's going to take longer. So it's the key really there is, is you know, those discussions on scoping diligence and figuring out the gaps, which will be the, the key thing to bottom out um, as soon as possible. Great, so, so that's covered timing. Uh, can you give us any guidance on, on anticipated cost? Yeah, so again, initially I think there was a perception that these synthetic policies would be much more costly than traditional W&I. 
But in fact, I don't think it's a significantly higher pricing that we're seeing. Um, I mean, the context is, you know, this is a slacker M&A environment. And so insurers are incentivized to win what business is around, frankly. Um, there are, I think people should expect a slightly higher premium, but this is probably in the range of, you know, other enhancements you may seek. So let's say 10 to 30% uplift on usual premium rates. Um, so not a huge amount. And you know, as I've already mentioned, there may well be cost advantages in other respects because, for example, there is no formal disclosure process, which you know, can, can be costly. Um, and then I would also just find you know, that there are also underwriting fees which are relevant as usual. And again, that, that may attract a slightly higher percentage. So again, let's say around 10 to 30%. And that's to reflect the fact that insurers will be more involved in the warranty negotiation and you know, need for a more rigorous Q&A process. Thanks, Adam. That's really helpful. Um, I think we've touched on a couple of these factors already, but could you give us a, a bit more background as to why you think this product has become more prevalent in the last few years? Yeah, so I guess the background is this product's been around, for those who aren't familiar, for about five years now. And I'd say its use is still relatively low versus use of non-synthetic products. So I don't think it's probably you know, anywhere near prevalent, but I think it is certainly on people's radar now more than ever, given the current economic climate. And you know, most insurers, I would say, are sufficiently familiar with the concept now and the product to feel you know, that they can offer cover in this way. So it's not, it's not a niche part of the market anymore. It's something that I think m most insurers would be feel comfortable quoting on that basis. And I'm guessing, given what's going on in, in, in the wider real estate market in particular, um, we're, we're assuming that this trend is gonna increase yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, the genesis for this, so we produced a briefing note on this topic recently at HWF and starting this discussion with you guys was was a few inbound inquiries we've had from lawyers who were looking at distressed or potentially distressed real estate sales. Um, and obviously taking a step back, 2023 has been a you know, particularly challenging year for M&A and that's been particularly acute for, for the real estate sector. And that's, I guess, no news to anyone, you know, continuing series of interest rate rises, which has, you know, posed particular challenges for investors who are looking to finance and, or refinance and obtain the types of return which they're accustomed to. And so, you know, with increased cost of finance, the questions around investors to keep servicing their debt obligations and so opportunities for distressed sales. And in that context, you know, buyers may be faced with sellers who are just unwilling to provide a, you know, a customary suite of warranties, even with a one-pound cap in a traditional W&I context. And that's because in those scenarios, you may be looking at liquidators, administrators, other insolvency practitioners, or even lenders who are seeking to realise remaining value on distressed assets. And those individuals are going to have potentially very limited or no knowledge on the underlying business. And so we're unwilling to stand behind those warranties, even with a one-pound cap, because as we've mentioned, they will then still be exposed to potential subrogation claims for fraud from insurers. And so those sellers are not going to be willing to assume any sort of personal liability. And so in that context, you can see how synthetic W&I insure, insurance is, is a useful product that can be deployed, um, you know, because it will provide 
buyers with meaningful recourse to an insurer in relation to you know, any issues that subsequently emerge and it won't expose those insolvency practitioners or lenders to related liabilities. But I guess the bigger question is like how much this distressed environment comes to bear, which is probably a topic which is on a lot of people's minds at the moment, and whether you know lenders, I think it comes down to whether lenders will seek to do all they can to avoid finding themselves in those distress scenarios and enforcing on, on, on loans, or will they come up to a resolution and try and, you know, effectively try and avoid that as, as much as they can by extending terms and, and, and you know coming to consensual agreements with with borrowers because you know I think they have all been slightly burnt and may still remember the you know the GFC in 2008 when all of a sudden banks were holding huge you know distressed real estate assets and then had the problem of offloading those through NPL sales etc so uh, you know whether we'll see you know that level of distress remains to be seen um, but you are also seeing the beginnings of some of that distressed environment, I think, on the continent in jurisdictions like Sweden and Germany with the huge walls of maturing bonds and you know, the likes of SBB in Sweden, for example, downgraded to junk status and, uh, some, and some of their assets being acquired by Brookfield. So, yeah, I think we are in a distressed environment already, certainly on the continent, and but whether you know we really see this product take off, I think depends on you know as I say in, in good part what how the lenders are willing to react in this in this environment. It's that aspect that I find super interesting about this product. Um, when we saw those distressed sales come through during the the, the financial crisis. Um, a lot were made materially more difficult by the absence of effective cover on acquisition. And secondly, um, the, the, the level of discount applied to a, um, a distressed sale was very significant to, to, to reflect that. So I think we're interested in this because it, it potentially provides a solution that kind of bridges that gap yeah. The, the, the difference in pricing expectation between sellers and buyers, um, whether those sellers be the equity or, or, or the debt, um, still remains one of the, the biggest impediments to market activity. Um, and layering on the additional discount to reflect a truly distressed sale, I think is only going to make things worse. It feels to me as if potentially synthetic insurance could be used to plug some of that gap simply because it lifts the, um, the, the quality of assurance that the buyer will get back to not far off what it would have been had the asset not been a distressed sale in the first place. Exactly, yeah. And as, as we've already touched on, I think to get to that level, it's just worth underlining that there, there, you know, there still will need to be a substantial diligence package on offer, which is that's going to be key in order to get the types of cover a prudent buyer would be looking for in a distressed context, all the same. Understood. Got it. Thanks, Adam. Uh, last question, I think. Are there any other developments in the world of transactional insurance that we should be aware of? Yeah, and, and obviously you, you may be familiar with some of these as, as well as your listeners, but I, I'd mention a couple of things here, um, one of which is the growth of the contingent insurance market, and then the second, the ever-increasing focus on the claims side of things. 
So in terms of contingent insurance, historically, transaction risk market by W&I has focused on unknown risks. But there's also now a thriving market for known risks. So that's pretty well known, I'm sure, amongst many for tax risks. Um, and so we've looked at many of those in the real estate context. So real estate transfer tax related liabilities being one of them, which we looked at recently in Italy, where, as you may know, tax authorities are very active and can apply decisions in a fairly unpredictable manner. Um, but as well as that, the contingent market allows for traditional deal blockers, so litigation, pension liabilities, or any type of contingent risk to be taken off the transaction table. And that insurance, you know, while more expensive typically than the W&I insurance, is still maybe a fraction of the price of other solutions which may be on the table. So, you know, a price chip, let's say, or reserving for an indemnity. And that world of insurance is not just limited to M&A as well. So, you know, it can be used in insolvency settings in terms of fund wind-ups and, you know, removing litigation, for example. Um, so, yeah, we... we, we at the same time, I joined HWF, um, an ex-Freshfields litigator, James Williamson, also joined, and he had a power offering in this space. So he's always happy to chat about those kinds of known risks, and you know, however exotic they may initially appear to be from a, a traditional insurance solution, you'd be surprised that there, there may well be one. Um, and the second thing I would mention is claims. And so we at HWF uh, produced the first ever market-wide independent claims study for the European W&I market recently. Uh, so we worked with 16 insurers who provided claims data covering over 10,000 policies across a seven-year look-back period. And that produced the first claims study, which generally represents a authoritative survey of the market. In terms of what we found, just to give you a flavour of some key stats, 11% um, of policies are receiving a claim notification. 64% of those have resulted in a payment. And so that means 5% of policies are resulting in a paid claim, which is a material number for a product which responds to unknown and unforeseen risks, as you can see. Um, and in terms of valid claims, 95% of those are getting paid within two years, and, and often that's much sooner. So, you know, we think that's an interesting case study, and, and, and it, it shows, these stats show that not only the value of W&I as a product, but also, you know, the worth of the fact that you know, insurers are actually paying out claims under these policies. Right, thanks Adam. Right, look, thank you uh, Adam, thanks Seb. Super interesting discussion uh, from my point of view. Um, I hope I'm okay to, to, to offer this Adam, but, but I'm sure if any of our listeners um, have follow-up questions, um, that they should feel free to reach out to you direct um, to raise them. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, we're always happy to help with, with any questions. Um, and as I mentioned, we, we have produced a note on this as well, which we'll, um, we'll make available to people. Thank you. Um, and look, HWF um, and Herbert Smith Freehills remain entirely committed to finding solutions. And so hopefully um, this is one that people may, may not have considered um, and I expect we'll be talking about it more um, as the market moves through its cycle. But yeah, thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.